0: Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm Bethany, Northeast Lead Pastor, and uh, good to see some new faces. Some of you I don't know, so as I say each week, it'd be great to put a name with a face. So if you are new and um, you'd like to come for you don't have to come forward at the end of the service, I mean, but I'll, this is where I'll probably be, so it'd be fun to meet you at some point um, and uh, and begin walking with you if that's something you're interested in knowing about our church or whatever. um be fun to kind of start doing that with you. Um, We are in a series in the book of Romans, and we're actually, uh, well, actually, we have this week and next week left before we start Advent. So, two more weeks in this series. We're going to pause for the season of Advent, which is that season leading up to Christmas, or we'll be in the book of Isaiah, and then we'll come back to Romans after the New Year. So, Romans 8, chapter uh, chapter 8 today, and uh, let me just take a moment to pray before we dive into it. God, thanks for the opportunity that we have now to pause in our week, to um, not only worship you as we've just done, but, um, in the context of our, of our worship life, God, to, um, open your word together and to, uh, allow your spirit to minister to us uh, through your word, God. So as Hebrews says, we know that your word is alive and that it's active and that it has the ability to shape our lives and open us to, um, new steps of faith that we're being called to take, Um, and so, God, would that shaping effect of the word this morning have be true for each of us and then for our community as well, as we seek to be faithful and faithfully present in this uh, city we live. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, Romans 8. So it's one of those chapters of the Bible. I, I liken it to like one of the desert island chapters of the Bible, if you remember that, back when records were a thing or CDs. For, for some of us, we have no idea, but there was that thing, I think it was on the radio when I was growing up, like, your Desert Island Disc. Remember this? And so if you could choose a CD, you know, Stairway to Heaven or whatever it would be, um, which one would it be? And so I think in the Bible there's a few of these. Romans 8's one of them. Psalm is one of them. But Romans 8, if you've ever read it, tip to tail, has all these verses in it that um, you probably memorized as a young kid. And I was looking at it earlier this week. It's just way too much for one sermon. I'm not sure why we didn't break this one up. <laughs> you know, and and then skip a few chapters of Romans because I haven't, you know, some of them are like, Ugh, you know, and so this one's so jammed full of stuff. Um, in fact, one of the verses, obviously we read one earlier that is evocative. One of them that really speaks to me is the very end of Romans 8, uh, chapters, or verses 30 and 39. Um, we had this song in our college fellowship. Um, those of you that were Children of the 90s know this song uh, from Romans 38 and 39, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels... I'm not going to sing it, but you know that song. I like that song. Did anyone else ever sing this? Nobody else sang this. A few of you, see, some of us are a little older than others. Yeah, wow, 98, baby, come on. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Stephen Curtis Chapman. No? So... uh, Anyway, those verses beg a question, if you really read them, uh, which is this. How can Paul have such bold confidence? I mean, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me or us from God's love. Um, especially if you think of what I talked about last week in chapter 7, where he's just filled, by the end of it, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to rescue me? Like He's just at the low point, kind of a low point of his life, and yet now by the end of 8, he's like, ha. <laughs> I'm so convinced, man. It's so amazing. I mean, he's just this uh, rare bird when it comes to faith. After all, he's the apostle Paul. Somehow he's figured out everything we need to figure out. We just need to figure out how to be like Paul and be confident, right? Just kind of push ourselves into that space. And what I want to say is that no, he's not a rare bird. And yes, uh, we can live with confidence like him. And here's what I mean by that. So each week I get the, another, another one of the emails I get each week. I've been sharing these, I guess, a lot. But this is from the New York Times. It's uh, from the Smarter Living blog by Tim Herrera. Does anybody else get this? It's every Monday I get this. It's a little email in my inbox. Um, and it's kind of just a newsletter on tips for living. But they're, they're very kind of interesting little things that you wouldn't think about connecting. And um, this one was funny from about a year ago. Five cheap things or cheapish things that could disproportionately improve your life. I'm I'm not going to read this, but I'm going to go through the five things because I thought they were fascinating. So the first one, he says, is a six-foot-long iPhone charging cable because then you can um, walk around your house and charge your phone at the same time, I guess, or lay in bed and charge your phone, which you should not do. Not because you'll get electrocuted, but because of all those reasons. And I do this all the time, so I shouldn't be saying that. That's number one, a long charging cable. Number two is a white noise machine, which... um, our tenant who goes to Bethany Green Lake has one, and she's thankful because our kids upstairs are pounding on the floor, and that just helps her kind of tune all of us out. Um, number three, it's wireless headphones. I don't have these, but I've been told by people these are game changers. Why is that? None of you have them either. Okay, good, because they're like $100. Why would you spend $100 on headphones? But I don't get that. Um, number three, number four, a truly great screwdriver. So some of you got this cheap screwdriver from your Your mother-in-law or something that break broke, you know, when you tried to take the screw out, but you need a good one. So I've got a couple. You want to make sure you have that. And number five, this is the punchline: a travel mug, a good travel mug. And this is not a mirror placement ad or anything, but this is a good. I was telling Silas about this because he was looking at travel mugs. I'm like, this is a good travel mug. So um the reason I tell you that, (laughs) you're like, this is stupid. Why are you sharing this? Um Specifically with Paul's declaration around Romans, uh, the confidence he has, as you read the rest of chapter 8, if you kind of back the train up a little bit, what, what Romans 8 really is as a whole is this articulation of the, the work of the Spirit in Paul's or in the community of uh, faith's life. So 21 times in the 26 ver- first 26 verses of Romans 8, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work, the Spirit's character, the Spirit's impact. There's no other passage in the Bible that talks more. Maybe John 17 might, but um, the, the work of the Spirit is profound here. And in that way, when you come to the end of it, when Paul's talking about his confidence, what I was thinking about this week is there's sort of this disproportionate impact of the Spirit on Paul's life. You know, you could say five things about the Spirit, which we're going to look at today, that have disproportionately changed his life, okay? Okay. Um, it's, it's not that he has this extraordinary degree of faith. He's not, he is a unique person, but he's just paying attention in his life to the things the spirit can do and has done. So he has that, his confidence is is just reflecting. It's like a a crescendo of the spirit's work in his life. And so today what I want to do with you is just look at the various ways the spirit can and does disproportionately change your life. And, um, and if you look at your outline and your bulletins, uh, Around 5 o'clock on Friday, I decided that that sermon was not the sermon that the Lord really wanted us to meditate on. So I rewrote this. Um, And the reason was, is what I had written up until Friday afternoon was sort of a uh, overarching 5,000 or 30,000 foot view of of Romans 8. All these ways the Spirit's going to work. And to me, after I got done with it, it felt like a seminary class. And um, I know that's not why you came to church this morning was to be in a classroom, um, but to really hear from God how God might connect with you in your life. And so what I decided is let's get down on the ground here and, and look at one phrase, one verse. You can throw this slide up, Jerfie. Romans 8.15, okay, which is talking about the Spirit. And this is one of those verses that you probably have memorized. We've received the Spirit of adoption as sons, and I'll just say sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I want to look right there. That's, there's five things in there. We're probably not going to get to all five of them, given how long I can go on like, a couple of the first two points. But this pregnant little verse, five trans- disproportionate impacts the Spirit has in your life. So first, the Spirit gives us a new vision for God. And if you're an outliner, you can write these things down. I'll repeat them as we go. But it gives us a new vision for God. So in him we cry, Abba. Okay? A new vision for God. The Spirit infuses our lives with a deep capacity for intimacy uh, audacity and sorrow. So in, in him we cry, Abba. Um, Spirit assures us of our position before God. In him we cry, Abba, Father. And then the last couple we may not get to, but I'll say them. The Spirit declares our union with God. In him we cry, Abba. And then the Spirit places us within a family of faith. In him we cry, Abba. Okay, so there's just a ton right in here, okay? And I'm just looking at parsing out the words with you. Um, and you're probably going, yeah, you're not going to get to all five. That's way too much. So, just go with me, and then we'll see where we, where we stop, okay? So first, the Spirit comes into our lives uh, and helps us declare Abba, Father, okay? So uh, the word Abba, you may have heard this in sermons before, is this Aramaic word that's not translated for us, and there's a reason for that. It's the word daddy, um, and it's a diminutive word, like a, a word a small child might use for their parent. But, and you've heard that, but I'd like to push that a little further because it's not actually entirely accurate. Um, it's it's best to translate Abba, not Daddy, but Dada. Uh, And you may be, there's no etymology to this word. It's just that's the word. And we all have, in our own languages, we have a word like that. So Brendan Manning gives this wonderful insight into this in one of his early books called Prophets and Lovers. He says that uh, in another book he read, there's this guy named Edward Schillenbecks who studied these uh, findings of child psychologists. And they made this observation that the average American child begins to speak at the age of 18 months. Average kid begins speaking 18 months, and invariably their first word is this, da, da, dad, daddy, or ma, ma, mom, mommy. That's their first word generally. And so he says, Edward Schillenbeck, we might say the same thing, because kids haven't changed that much. A first century Jewish child in in Palestine would say this in Aramaic, ab, or ah, ab, abba, abba, daddy. And, that's a, and this is what Manning says, that revolutionary revelation of Jesus is this, that the infinitely holy God in whose presence Moses had to remove his shoes, from whose fingertips the universe fell, beside whom, whose beauty the Grand Canyon is just a shadow, can be addressed with the same intimacy, familiarity, tenderness, and reverence of an 18-month-old. That's amazing. And so my mother-in-law uh, to my children is uh, Bestmore. My father-in-law's best far. And those are Norwegian words that mean maternal grandmother and maternal grandfather. But notice, my kids, and they're eight and thirteen now, they don't go up to my best my my mother-in-law and go, Hey, maternal grandmother, happy Thanksgiving. Hey, maternal grandfather, happy Thanksgiving. They say best of far, best amor, uh, even though they are paternal and maternal grandparents. And um you have very similar terms for your grandparents. You're going to maybe see them over Thanksgiving. Some of them have passed already, and you have a term of endearment, and you've used it your whole life. Why is that? Because uh, when you were an infant, this is a primal, instinctive thing we, we, we don't even think about doing. 18 months old are not thinking about the person they're calling dad, dad, daddy. They're just doing it. It's the first word that comes out of their mouth. What is that getting at? What Paul is saying is the most, this is a reference to the very most, the most primal, primal, instinctive, earliest language we can come up with as human beings. See, an eight year old, my son is eight, has a very calculating way of coming at you usually. <laughs> like, he's cute, he'll run up to me, jump on my lap, and say, Daddy, buy me a Lego. <laughs> hey, Daddy, snug up to me, I want $5. You know? I want to go to so and so's house. He's already learned at eight how to bargain with me. And he knows he knows my heartstrings, Daddy. I love you. Can I watch a show? You know, and um. <laughs> but that's not what an infant is doing. Never, infants don't do that. When an infant says "dada," the infant is just saying "dada." The infant wants to grab by the neck. The infant wants to get close to the face of their father uh, to see the world as their father sees it, their mother sees it. Um, they have a primal need for being held. Um, if they're afraid or they're lonely, they have this deep, inexpressible desire to be close. And thus, what Paul is trying to say to us is that when we become Christians, begin following Christ, when the Spirit begins to work on our hearts and transform our hearts, the first thing that happens, the first evidence of the Spirit's work in our, our lives is there's this, there's this language toward God that you never before had, that, that, that reflects your yearning and your longing and your desire for God that you didn't have before. Which is to say, there's a way of being a Christian in which you can be calculating. You can say, Father, I need. Father, I want. I have contingencies, but I'm going to call Father, Holy God, Lord, help me. And there's ways of looking at God that are about information, you know, where we we have a subjective distance or objective distance from God. We talk about God's omniscience, His omnipresence, His power, and His glory. We have language of duty and obedience. It's all good, but that's not central. There, when we drop our contingencies, when we drop the objectivity, and all we want is closeness, and we lack pretense any longer, we just say, Abba. That's when the Christian life really starts. And that's, what Paul says there is, he, is God absolutely desires a relationship with us. And, 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 and inside, a declaration of God as Father, Abba. The, the change of that, that language, simple language changes that relationship fundamentally. And this is the Spirit comes in and gives us a new perspective, a new vision of God. And it's because of that that something happens. It's a, a new kind of viewpoint of God. Uh, you have a new language. You have a new, you're no longer just after God's blessing um, or help. You're not after his stuff. You're, you're just after God. You want is like a, an infant. Once the, the Father's neck, you're after God's neck, his face. You want his embrace. You just want his nearness. And when you get there, um, you've begun to walk with Christ. In fact, uh, a great story that kind of brings this home is Jacob wrestling God in, in Genesis. Remember this story. I mean, Jacob, talk about a guy who's calculating and conniving and has contingencies. Obviously, he wrestles God. He's left with this limp has his name changed to Israel. But remember this. He asks God his name at the end of that story. He says, what's your name? So my name's now Israel. What's your name, God? And he calls him Peniel, or Peniel. And you know what that word means? He's the only person to call God this. It means the face of God. The face of God. So he's, we're being told that, that Jacob moved from unbelief to belief by just saying, God, I got close to you enough to see your face. Your father. In some deeply theological way, he began to walk with Christ. Even though that's not Christ, he began to see God in a, in a, in a in fleshed way, and that's what God wants. He wants to transform our vision of him. Um, so have you ever called on God as Father? Brendan Manning calls this the Abba experience that he had at one point in his life. Um, have you ever had an experience of God that's close like that, that's deep like that? I want you to hold on to that question because we'll come back to it at the end here. So that's the first thing. God, Spirit gives us a new vision of God that is about really just being a Father, Abba, to us. Here's the second thing. The Spirit infuses our life with a decapacity for intimacy, audacity, and sorrow. So in him, we cry, Abba. Um, we're going to just focus on that word cry. The Greek word for cry is krazo, and it's a very strong word. It's actually an automatopoeic word that means to croak. In him, we croak, Abba. Um, interestingly, in Luther's German New Testament, that word is, is translated kraxen, which is the German equivalent of the croak of the raven. It's the raven's croak, croxen, you know, the raven's croak. So in that way, what that literally means is it should be translated, in him we croak, <laughs> Abba, we vociferate, we, we cry aloud, we, we, in, in particular with inarticulate cries. Um, so for example, in the story of the, the man in, G, in Mark 5 that Jesus delivers from the tombs, the garrison demoniac, we're told that before Jesus meets this man, this man can be found night and day, on the mountaintops, crying out, crock zoing uh, cutting himself with stones. He's crying out, and his cries were, of course, because he was in mental, physical, spiritual, social anguish. Um, and thus, Paul is saying, think about that with respect to the Father. We cry out something that goes very, very, very deep. Um, a cry is not something you you. It's something you experience. It's not something you claim. In other words, like this man wasn't claiming that he was in anguish. He was, he was expressing the, the experience of his anguish. He's experiencing suffering. Now, how that applies to our experience of Abba, in him we cry Abba, most of the time when it comes to our identity as sons and daughters, we tend to claim it. We tend to claim it. We say, I see this truth about God. I heard it from a preacher. I uh, heard it in a podcast, and I, I believe it. I claim it. We even have a phrase, I name it and I claim it, right? And that usually means what we're doing, we're doing it very intellectually. We say, because this is true about God, God's good, and I'm going through something bad, I'm going to claim God's goodness. I believe it. I'm going to believe myself into that. Uh, I feel alone. I feel helpless. I know that God's with me. He said he's with me. Never be afraid. So I'm going to claim that God's presence is here. I'm going to claim courage and peace and joy. And that's all good for us to do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We need to claim our identity. Um, We are fickle. We're mercurial people. So seasons come and go. We have to learn kind of to lean in. That, and it, it's not just about feelings. It's about decision. But listen, this is an object, that's an objective cry. God has to be more than that to us. Um, it's, God has to be more than like a museum piece to us. That's how we often come to God. Like we inspect God. We appreciate God. We kind of walk around God and we say, hmm, isn't, isn't God interesting? And then we go home. And we, we get on with the rest of our living, our sleeping, our eating, our working, and God is not part of that. God's here, but not there. And God wants more than merely just to be looked at, like a painting on a wall. He, he is, if He is all He says He is, He says, in Him, the Spirit says, in Him we cry, Abba. In other words, we're no longer being called to just objectively claim our identity as sons and daughters. It has to become this subjective reality. Going back to the metaphor of a museum, instead of just looking at God and appreciating God from a distance, uh, remember that Story The the Voyage of the Dawn Treader with Lucy and Edmund and Susan, uh, or uh, Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace. And there's this beginning beginning of the story. This is Chronicles of Narnia. They like get in the painting, and that's when the story starts. We're kind of being called to be like them, climb into these truths about who God is and and, and participate in them with, with the Spirit. We get to experience our identity, like gutturally. So when the Spirit is doing this work, you don't have to tell yourself that you're a son or daughter. You don't have to do it. It's just intuitive. You know it. And uh, that means when you cry, Abba, it's about intimacy, it's, but not just about intimacy. It's also about audacity. So, you know, Jesus tells this story at one point in his his ministry that's, that tells us about audacity with God. There's this story of this friend who comes knocking on his friend's house at midnight. Remember this story in Luke 11? And it says that, you know, there's this one friend who needs a loaf of bread. By the way, don't do that. Just go to QFC. But, um, you know, man gets up, goes to his friend's house, says, hey, I need some bread. And, and because, it says because of his persistence, just kept knocking, hey, we need some bread. We need some bread. Uh, there was no QFCs back then, I guess. So um, the man opened his door and gave him bread. And the Greek word there for persistence is shameless audacity. This guy, this shameless audacity, just kept knocking until he knew. He's like, you're my friend. You're going to open the door until I, you know, if you don't don't open the door, I'm not going to go away. And so what I'm trying to get at is there's this boldness that we're being invited to have toward God. Because if you read that story, Jesus is not just talking about a friend and a friend, and he's not talking about bread for sure. He's talking about how we approach God. At the very end, he has another parable. He says, which of your fathers, think of this, he, he switches metaphors, if your son asks for a fish, gives him a snake. And which of, which of you, when you ask for an egg, give a scorpion? If, if, you're, if your father is good, <laughs> he's going to give you good gifts. And so he's invited us through the Spirit to come knocking. Just keep asking. Keep asking. Be audacious. And that's what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying. We're invited to have this attitude of a child toward their father and just come expecting that God... It's going to be true to who God is. That's what it means to cry, Abba. Uh, Again, another great illustration of this in the Old Testament is is, uh, Abraham with God. And when he, God's going to destroy Sodom in Genesis 18. Remember this story? And Abraham in Genesis 18, 24, listen, he says, really, God, are you? I mean, think of doing this with God. You're going to sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Really, God? I mean, what if there's 50? He says, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city, God? Uh, far be it. And then he says, far be it from you, God. Think of saying that to God. Far be it from you to kill the righteous and the wicked. Far be it from you. Will not, and then he, will not the judge of the earth do right? I mean, talk about audacity. I don't know if you've ever talked to God that way. Um, and yet Abraham possessed that. He, he had this view of God. He was like a child toward the father. Um, I mean, do you have that attitude toward God? That's, that's how children act. Like I told you, my son, you know, will often ask for things, but rarely comes up to me and says, uh, well, I see you're awful busy, and I see what you're doing, and you've got it all figured out, you know? You know, I'm, not, I'm just going I'm I'm to sit over here and obey, you know? Children are just, by nature, audacious. Like, they say some of the most audacious and impudent things, And and, and the reason is if our relationships with our children are healthy, there's not this huge power differential. If if there's openness for them to be able to speak to you, uh, they know that, that your love for them is not conditioned on being just subservient and submissive and compliant. They know they can come to you when they see things are out of whack, when they see things aren't right. And this is an invitation for us to go to God with the same audacity and cry to God and say, you know what? When I see cancer, that's not right. When I see fire all over the earth because of, of, of negligence, that's not right. When I see shooting again this week, that's not right. God, do something. You are, you are Abba. You are Father. You are good. You're just. You're merciful. Show your mercy, God. God is inviting us to come to him like that, with audacity. That's what it means to, to come crying, Abba. To say, God, this is not right. Make it right. And then finally, the, the Spirit gives us a capacity for deep sorrow. So intimacy, audacity, also sorrow. Because it, it doesn't just say that we say, Abba, Father. We, it says we cry out. We crock so, Abba, Father. And like I said, that is a word of, which connotes deep emotion. Usually a person's in distress. So Mark 5 again, this man in the tombs. And actually the, the entire, if you read all of Romans 8 together sometime, Ironically, one of the things you're going to hear, if you've heard this before, is it's all about the the victorious Christian life. How to be victorious, how you can live in victory, right? You've heard that before. I mean, hope, courage, these are great themes, right? Yet when you really read it, and I don't want to be too cynical about how it's been taught, but when you really read it, it's one of the most realistic chapters in the whole Bible on life. Um, I mean, no less than three times in this chapter, Paul talks about, What what this word that sums up our experience in life, which is the word groaning. We heard Esther read this. Uh, One of my Greek professors at Princeton called it this. uh, That word groaning is a deep sighing with throbbing pain. Um, So you take a a look at it. Verse 22, the entire physical world is groaning. It's sighing. It's in pain. And why? Because it says there that all all over the world, in creation, people are subject to decay. The world is subject to decay as, as... Uh, Chinua Achebe said, everything is falling apart. We know that. Everything is falling apart. You don't need to be a scientist, sociologist, psychologist to know that. You just look around. You know that everything is decaying. The world is throbbing in pain. And it it just sucks. Um, And then you look at verse 23. It's not just that the world's throbbing in pain, but we ourselves, Christ followers, are throbbing in pain. Even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says, we're groaning. In other words, the world's sighing, we're throbbing, we're sighing too, which is an assertion that has been very scandalous for a lot of people because they say, well, Christianity means happiness, it means prosperity, it means a good life, right, insulated from suffering and sickness and pain. But we all know that that's not reality. That's not your reality. In fact, that's not the reality in the Bible. If you read the Bible, there is suffering written on almost every page. There's Job, there's Joseph, there's Naomi, there's Ruth. There's David. There's Jesus. Almost all those characters at some point in their life had experienced incredible suffering. Again and again, the Bible is filled with sufferers, people who suffer, which is why Paul says life in Christ is one that is marked by suffering, by groaning. It's parcel, part and parcel of walking with Christ. Um, And then, wow, that's fun. Thanks, Jack. (laughs) Uh, Verse 26 says this, in the same way as creation suffering, we suffering The Spirit suffers. This is crazy. So the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Indeed, we don't know what to pray for. And then the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't with groaning too deep for words. The Spirit is suffering. Now, what's that about? I mean, the Spirit is suffering? See, it's typical for people to say, well, we live in this terrible world. There's brokenness all around us. There's sin, bad things. And the Spirit is going to come in And whisk me away. And I'm going to be, you know, living in victory. And it may not be today. Maybe someday later. We're going to, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Thank God we're not. Right? The Spirit's going to save us from that. But that's not what Paul says. Verse 26 assumes that not only is the Christian life a continual experience of suffering, it it says the Spirit doesn't take that away. The Spirit joins us in it. It's, in other words, the Spirit is not going to help us through our weakness, save us from our weakness. It's, it's, going to, it's going to save us through it. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. It's not going to save us from our weakness. It's going to help us or save us through it. And so here's how. By interceding, standing in the gap with us, like groaning alongside you, participating with you in your, in your suffering, um, teaching you how to groan. Like, think of that. It's not a question of whether or not you're going to suffer. If you haven't really experienced suffering, It's not a question of whether or not you are. It's when and how. Everybody is going to see and experience bad things. Everybody. We live in a fallen world. Everybody is going to experience loss. Everybody is going to experience throbbing and and sighing. And the question is how. How are you going to experience it? How are you going to groan? And will you let the Spirit teach you a new way to do it? Uh, A way that goes deeper, that is more vulnerable and more honest than you've ever experienced before a way that's not cynical, a way that's not angry, a way that can say, God, I know you, you're in it with me. I trust you because, because you suffered and you died. It leads to communion with God in your suffering. So you're going to groan, and, and the Father is saying, if you, look to the, if you look to God in your suffering, if you think about God, if you think about how the son died and how you are a son, how you are a daughter, if you, if you groan in a sense toward the Father, Um, there will be a wisdom that develops in you, a beauty, a wholeheartedness, like a spiritual depth. And you're going to expand, you're going to grow through suffering. That's what the spirit does. It it grows us through groaning. Um, so that's the last thing in this, in this second point, intimacy, audacity, and sorrow. And like I said, I told you five things. (laughs) We're not going to get through them. So let me do one more and then we'll invite the worship team back up. So, um, Here's the third thing. The Spirit assures us of our, our position before God. So, listen to this. We received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. And in Him we cry, Abba, Father. And um, I've heard, I, I was told that this month is National Adoption Month. So, this is a real timely word for both those that are adopted in the room, those that are adopting. We can long for those that don't have parents because um, God says we are adopted children. Of God. But here's the thing, to be adopted requires no effort. You don't adopt yourself, which is a way of saying that Christianity is, is not something we achieve. We always and only receive it. You only receive your, your walk with Christ. You never achieve it. Um, so our assurance of our adoption is a way of just opening our hands to God and saying this, take me home. See, in the ancient Near East... Uh, usually adoption happened with adults. With us, we think of adoption, we think of young kids, right? Um, In the ancient Near East, you didn't adopt a little kid the way we do. Usually, it it was always a man because only men could own property. And usually, childless families, the man would go and find another man in a community, a single man, usually, but an adult. And he'd say to this younger but adult man, he's, he who he admired and loved, and maybe he was a, he had a good business acumen and just seemed like a good leader. He'd say to him, "Hey, I'd like to adopt you as my son," which is way of saying I want you to take over my estate when I die. Um, and so, when if the, they agree to this, then when the man dies, all of the man's money goes to this this son, all of it, who biologically is not his. Um, so it means he gets his name, he gets his privileges. He gets his legal status, all of his wealth. And the reason that's important, it's the most fundamental way that we need to think of ourselves in relationship to God. We've been adopted. We've received a a spirit of adoption because to be an adopted child means you're much more than just forgiven. Um, I mean, think about it. What does it mean to be a Christian? Think about the essence essence of it for you. As an evangelical, some of you say, I'm born again. You know, you describe yourselves that way. Uh, I'm forgiven, all these kinds of things. And those are good things. I'm not saying you shouldn't say that. But, but our, our identity in Christ goes much deeper than those things. Because to be a child of God, to be an adopted child of God, means you begin to learn and rest inside of a relationship about forgiveness. And learn and rest inside of a relationship about renewal and growth, which is what born again is all about, transformation. It means you have your life placed inside of a relationship filled with de- delight and confidence and assurance and, and security. You've been adopted in. And the best, the best illustration of this that I can, I, th- I can think of in the Bible has is, is always been and always will be to me, Luke 15, the, the story of the prodigal son. Actually, there's, you know that parable. There's two sons in the story. There's an older and a younger son. And the, the younger brother comes to his father and, and asks for an early inheritance. Um, he says, Father, when you die... My older brother's going to get half. I'm going to get half. And um, I want my half right now. Which, by the way, is basically him wishing his father dead. Which is another sermon for another day. So he says, sell off whatever part of the land is mine. And give me the money. Because I want my inheritance today. And, and that's audacious. <laughs> Talk about audacity. And yet the father... He's good. He's gracious. He does this, and the son, of course, goes off, squanders it in some far off city, and what the Bible calls lavish living. And he gets to the point where he's wasted it all. He's he's um, in this point of poverty, body, soul, and spirit. He's just dying, and he decides he needs to do something about it. So he goes home. He says, "I'm going to go home to my father, Um, even though I've I've basically wished him dead. I'm going to go home to him, empty-handed, impoverished, filled with shame. I'm going to confess." And so he's walking home, and what does the, remember this story, what does the father do? The son is on his way back, but he hasn't even really gotten up the road that far. He wants to confess. The father runs out to him. The father won't let him confess. When the father sees him coming from afar, he, like, it's like he cuts across the field to cut him off at the beginning of the road. And, and the son falls on his face, and he says, wait, hold on, let me confess, father. And the father, wanting to let the confession get out, he, without words, pounces on his son. The Bible says he literally falls on his neck and begins kissing him. And then he says, my son's home to everybody around. And do you know what this is? This is Romans eight fifteen and 16. It's the spirit bearing witness with our spirits, which have been broken. We have been broken by years of shame, self-condemnation, self-hatred, all kinds of things, guilt. We, can't, we just can't believe that God's for us, that God actually likes us. Let alone loves us. We just feel like, ugh, I just, ugh, there's so much about me I don't like. How can God like me? And that God wants to welcome us home, like we'll come to church, but I mean, that God wants me actually in his household (laughs) as a son or a daughter, that's a little too intimate. And yet the Spirit doesn't wait for us to come up the road to get to that point of recognizing that the Spirit of God runs after us with groaning, like I said, too deep for words, and says, you're a child you're adopted you are a son and a daughter you in fact you're more than that you're an heir to the throne that's what verse 17 says the spirit of god is the spirit of adoption the spirit of a good father just bearing witness chasing us down the road of our failure falling on us and just declaring truth over us where we can never believe it's true you're beloved you're so beloved and you're deeply and desperately loved um That's the fundamental truth of your identity. And and nothing and nobody can take that away from you. And that's what it means at the end of the day to say this scripture. We've received the spirit of adoption. And in him we cry, Abba, Father. Um, So what I want to invite us to do, invite our worship team up, um, is to do that. We're going to sing this song uh, we have two songs to sing, but one of them is a song we've sung a little bit called Reckless Love. And the author of this song at one point talked about this song. He's, he's talking about how this is actually for him from that chapter in Luke, Luke 15, um, where he realized that um, God's love is, I mean, he uses this word reckless, which some of us go, ooh, God's reckless. But God's love is, is it doesn't calculate I mean, if anybody's being like a, like a kid, it's God. He doesn't calculate. He's not thinking about, well, I might love you right now. You came to church. You're sitting quiet. You're listening. Good job. He doesn't, that's not how God's love is. God wants to pour that out on you. And in that way, it's reckless. He just gives it away freely. And um, we're invited into relationship with God in the same way as children, just receiving freely. And so what I want to invite you to do is as we sing these words, picture yourself as that son or that daughter um, climbing up into your father's lap or your, your mother's lap um, just for a look at God, just to get close to God, maybe because you're feeling a sense of uh, aloneness, loneliness, desperation in a, in a thing you're facing and just crying out, Abba, Father, I belong to you. Just take a moment to pray, and then we'll sing this song together. God, um, I said a lot of things, God, and um, my prayer, God, is that um, in the in the saying of them that uh, our hearts would be now receptive to what you might say to us. I want to confess, God, with my friends here that uh, thinking of you as Father can feel like a distant concept. We all have fathers and mothers, um, some of whom have failed, some of whom have been really amazing, and yet, um, God, it's hard to think of you that way. Uh, And so we need your Spirit, God, just like Romans says, to intercede for us, to... um, Teach us, God, what it looks like to come to you with that same longing that we have for relationship. So, Spirit, I invite you to minister to our hearts right now. Um, As we stand in your presence, Father, we long to cry, Abba. We belong to you. Restore us to that place, God, we pray. In Christ's name, by the Spirit. Let's sing this.